Um, great. We're, um, if you're just visiting, we're in a series. Oh, I'm James, by the way. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, <laughs> and we're in a series called Joy on the Journey, looking in the book of Philippians. Um, I've read an interesting Bible fact this week, that apparently there's 2,700 words to do with cheer and joy, rejoicing and gladness. It's a big Bible theme, which is why we're focusing this whole series on having joy on the journey of following Jesus, because we want to discover that true joy that never ends on life's journey is only found in him. Let me uh, start with a, a story first. Um, it was an ugly city. The fine old buildings had been pulled down over the years, and they'd been replaced by huge square concrete monstrosities. Maybe you visited a city like this once. They were, they were designed for function, not good looks. Uh, though by the time I went there, they were just getting tatty and ragged at the edges. And I wondered just how functional they were now. It was a depressing place. But then, just a few years ago, an architect was appointed by the city council to design a new civic centre right in the heart of the city, in the middle of all that ugliness. They couldn't afford to pull everything down again, but they could just afford, they reckoned, to begin the process of making the city once more the beautiful place the old pictures had showed it to have been. The architect was not a young man, but he had cherished this sort of opportunity all his life, and he went to work on the design, and some while later, while the prepara- when the preparations were complete, he saw the foundations laid. He was then taken ill and unable to carry out his work on the project, but he still cared passionately about it and gave detailed instructions to his colleagues as to how it was all to proceed. After all, he said to them, when people think of me, I want them to think of this beautiful building. You've got to make it so that it stands like a lighthouse in a dark storm, showing people that there is such a thing as beauty, even when everything else around is ugliness. That will be my reward. And Paul, in this message, is like that architect. He's looking forward once more to the day when Jesus will return, and bring the whole of the universe to justice and to peace. He doesn't know whether he'll live to see that day, Paul, um, but he's designed a building, this church in Philippi, um, that if the builders keep working at it the way he showed them, then it will stand out as a thing of beauty. That's what he wants for this church in Philippi, for it to stand out as a thing of beauty in a world of ugliness. The sign of what Jesus is going to eventually do to the whole of the earth. So you probably don't need me to tell you that um, this world can be a pretty ugly place, can't it? It can be a pretty ugly place at times. It can be full of disagreement, uh, full of argumentation, full of airing grievances. It can be a place of conflict, of protest, of demands, disharmony and friction. We're seeing that at the moment. We've referred to it this morning, haven't we, on the international stage. We're seeing that played out at the minute, aren't we? That kind of thing. In Russia's invasion of Ukraine, our hearts are wrenched, like Evelyn was just saying, wrenched to see the conflict there going on and being played out on our news feeds at a distance. 
But it's not just an international stage, is it? It happens on a national level. You think of COVID was hardly a peaceful time for us as a nation. Neither has been following COVID guidance and all of the furor in the media around that. Neither are the um, issues of racial discrimination that are ongoing. Unless we think that's kind of just out there, it's kind of a big international national thing. On an individual level, it's, just, it's no different, is it? Life is often full of family and um, societal and workplace conflict. Um, the divorce rates are significantly high. Um, if you look on social media, you're on social media and you have a flick around, you'll quickly realize that it's not a place of harmony. <laughs> Is it? It's a place for people to air their disagreements and their grievances with one another. There's a lot of behind-screen arguing. I mean, whilst it might be difficult to do it with somebody face-to-face, there's something about getting behind a screen that feels quite safe. Where people are, and you can feel it coming out of the screen at you, can't you? It's an angry uh, place, social media, at times. Um, one of the things I read online is about a certain football team and uh, how they're doing. And if you live in the world of football for long enough, you'll realize that grumbling and moaning and difference of opinion basically um, characterizes that world. <coughs> so it doesn't matter what the article is about. If I scroll down to the comments section, there's a list of comments that as people airing their grievances, conflict, argumentation. Well, what the good news is is that Jesus has come to establish a kingdom of peace, of harmony, and wholeness. That's good news, isn't it? It's not going to last forever. Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom. How's he, going to, how's he doing that? Well, he's done that by reconciling God with humanity through the cross of Jesus, that we were, um, there was something between us and God. There was a, there was a conflict he was perfect, and we're not. He's righteous. We've lived unrighteously. He's loving. We've been unloving at times. And that's created a chasm and a separation between us. And Jesus, by living the perfect life, dying the death we deserved, and rising again from the dead, has, on our behalf, uh, made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. So the, his perfection, his righteousness, his loving nature becomes our own. And God is no longer angry with us because he's pleased with us in Jesus as we're given Jesus' perfection and righteousness. God is reconciling us with himself. And it means that we can be reconciled with one another as, as, as well. That us, We as a people, as a church, as Jesus' kingdom people are to represent that and that we're to be like the building in the story, a beautiful sight to behold. So shall we read the passage? We're in Philippians 2, um, verse 12 to 18. There's a guy called Paul writing it. He's writing it to a church in Philippi. He's writing it from prison. And this is what he says in verse 12 onwards. Therefore, my beloved, he's got great affection for them, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will, so to want and desire, and to work, i.e. to do, for his good pleasure. 
do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain as I served you. Um, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So if we just summarize the passage, what Paul is essentially saying is this. Work out your salvation seriously to please God by obeying Jesus' humble attitude and example in our relationships and so shine as lights in a dark world of conflict. So first of all, work out your salvation seriously to please God. So he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, said that this said this about this passage, uh, or this little phrase here. Perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. God has initiated salvation in us by his grace through faith in Jesus and his work for us. As, as I was saying earlier, Jesus has lived the perfect life. He's loved the Father, he's obeyed him, he's loved others. And that life, we, we don't have to ourselves go through life trying to be good enough anymore because Jesus' life can become our own. Um, we don't have to anymore kind of uh, self-flagellate and um, kind of um, feel guilty and weigh ourselves down with the burden of our own wrongdoing. Because Jesus, we don't have to punish ourselves because Jesus has been punished for us on our behalf. He's died the death that we deserve to die. We don't have to try and live forever. We don't have to spend all our hard-earned cash on anti-aging creams just to try and stretch it out a few more years. Because Jesus has been raised to life and we've been raised with him. We've been raised with him. Uh, to a new life, to resurrection life. And so Jesus' resurrection is ours. And so we've got the hope, not that the cream will work, but that Jesus will come back and give us new bodies to live forever for eternity. We don't need to make ourselves the kings of our own lives, kind of establishing our own kingdom, because Jesus has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne for eternity, establishing his kingdom. And in Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So there's nothing really for us to be king over. Jesus has the whole world. Nothing more for us to be gained. And so, uh, I went off my notes. Yeah, so God has initiated and worked salvation in us by his grace through what Jesus has done for us. And when we have faith in him, it's ours. God works in us, and we work it out. That's this dynamic that Paul's talking about. God works in us, and we work it out. God works in us that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, works in us to change our attitudes 
and to help us be humble like Jesus and to live it out in our relationships with other people. Um, And we continually ask, don't we, the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh, to continue to change our attitudes, to help us live like Jesus and live it out in our relationships with others in a world of conflict and disharmony. So Jesus works in us by his Holy Spirit and we work it out with the help of the Holy Spirit. We work it out by cooperating and partnering with the Holy Spirit, don't we? He works in us and we work it out and we apply it, uh, his work in us, to our life by changing our attitude and living it out. And so the Christian life's a bit like a, a bike ride. Um, you've got two pedals, haven't you, to move you along to your destination of being at home with the Lord. And the two pedals are God working in us and us working it out. And the two need to be going around at the same time to push the bike along. And what can happen is you can end up being a little bit peg-legged or being all stronger on one side than the other and having a bit of a wonky walk <laughs> because one leg is stronger than the other if we don't push both pedals. Because we can end up overemphasizing God's part to play to the neglect of ours. Kind of let God be God. It'll all kind of work out in the end. And that can kind of lead to a bit of passivity, can't it? You kind of like just drift along in the Christian life. It just, it'll click one day, it'll all just come together. When I meet Jesus, he's just going to sort it out. <laughs> so don't, you just kind of drift along in the Christian life. And there's the other pedal, isn't there, that can be overemphasized, where we overemphasize our part to play and to the neglect of um, God's. It can leave us feeling burdened and helpless. This kind of, I wish I could do this, but I just can't seem to do it, frustration. Um, But rather, we're to say, I'm not mastered by anything in my character or in my situation, but with the help of God, I can change. And so we push both pedals on the bike round, as it were. Um, God working in us, us cooperating with the Spirit and working it out into our lives we don't need, some say this, we don't need to work for our salvation. It's a quote, but I have no idea where it came from because um, I've heard it so many times. We don't need to work out our salvation. Sorry, we don't need to work for our salvation, but we do need to work out our salvation. And Paul says with fear and trembling. What does he mean by fear and trembling? He means to work it out seriously. I, not seriously like, but seriously like, you know, with some effort and energy, <laughs> not with a kind of, uh, it'll just kind of click and all fall into place. He says, holding fast to the word of life, that we take seriously the working out of our salvation, that God's work in us, take it seriously, put some effort and energy into what Jesus' work in us looks like in our life and how we live our life. So how can we do that? How can we uh, do this? Well, first, five things. First is, we can be intentional about growing in character and growing in the fruit of the Spirit and asking ourselves, what fruit of the Spirit at the moment do I want to grow in? You know, of peace, joy, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control, faithfulness. What, what are these? Patience. What are these do I need to grow in at the moment? So that first, be intentional about our character. Be intentional about what we do in life and learning to live Jesus' way of life. Whether that be our prayer or fasting or um, meeting with God by meeting him in scripture uh, and reading the Bible, whether it be uh, rest and work balance, whatever it might be, how are we 
um, being intentional about learning to live like Jesus and get around those who seem to be able to do that. You, you know, you see another Christian, you think, they seem to like have that area of following Jesus nailed. It's good to kind of get around them, see how they live their life, learn from them and the way that they've done it. Uh, three, open your life to others and invite others' input. It's good to have a, f- a few relationships where you can say to people, is there anything you see in my life at the moment that just looks out of kilter? Do you think I could grow in? And have those kind of friendships where people can speak to you and say, yeah, yeah, there are a few. <laughs> I've got a list. <laughs> no. And people who can be honest with you. And you, you won't feel defensive and get your guard up, but they can speak into your life. You could be open to their input. Another way is in our house groups. The reason we're making those house group resources is so that we can open up the Bible together. And one of the sections is, how does this apply to our life? We've understood the passage, but how do we apply it to our life? And kind of talking that through with one another. And fifth, uh, verse 13, it says, be motivated by desire to please God. There are all sorts of bad reasons to try and work out your salvation. Comparison. I want to look good next to this person. Or I want to be thought well of. And so I'll work it out. Um, To be good enough for God. I want to kind of earn a sense of I'm good enough to have a relationship with God and be called one of his people. Or maybe it's pride or duty. All sorts of bad reasons. But there's one good reason. And it's to please God. He's pleased with us in Christ, and our response to that, we live to please him. So what does that look like specifically when we're dealing with conflict and disagreement? I thought I'd just flick, because I thought we might have time, to Matthew 5. If you've got a Bible and you're able to, feel free to turn to Matthew 5. But Jesus is talking about um, anger. Um, he's talking about how we deal with uh, when we feel hurt by others, when we're dealing with disagreement and grievances and concerns with others. And he says in verse 21 in Matthew 5 this, You've heard that it was said, this is in his Sermon on the Mount, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If any of us has ever been angry, ever, in any moment, we're liable to judgment. Um, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're coming to worship, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, i.e. before you worship, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. And so Jesus says a few things about this. First he says, desire reconciliation. That's to be our hearts. Whether they've wronged you or you've wronged them, desire reconciliation. Desire to put things right, to live at harmony with one another, to be at peace with each other. To deal with a sense, if you've got justified anger, or even possibly unjustified anger, to deal with it and put it to the side. Um, To deal with any sense of entitlement and expectation 
And he says, go, initiate. Whether you've been wrong, actually in this scenario, he's talking about when you've been wronged. Initiate, go to the person and seek to resolve it. And first be reconciled before worshipping, before bringing your gift to the altar. I.e., it's a priority. Don't, don't worry about, he's saying, don't worry about singing and doing this until you've, if you've got something wrong, if, it's not, if you're not at peace with somebody else, go and first at least start to try to resolve it before you start doing that. And he says quickly, i.e. don't delay. As soon as you can, desire reconciliation, resolve what's going on in your heart and go quickly to the person. And then later on in Matthew in 18:15, he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them. And then he tells a whole parable about forgiveness. I go to the person. Don't go to this person or this person or this house group or this family. Go to the person. Go to them and tell them so that you'll gain your brother and sister, so that you'll live in peace and harmony with one another again. So work out your salvation seriously to please God. Secondly, by obeying Jesus' humble attitude and example in our relationships. Verse 12 uh, starts, therefore. What's the therefore? Well, the passage before was the one that Rod brought us last week, which is one of the most amazing passages in the whole of Scripture. Totally envious that Rod got it. Uh, I planned the rotor, and I really tried to squeeze myself into there, but there was no way of doing it. Um, it's an amazing passage that tells us that Jesus lives this example of humble obedience by going to the cross in our place. Jesus' example was that he wasn't rivaling us. It wasn't out of conceit. His example is one of counting others, i.e. you and I, more significant than himself. Jesus' example was looking to our interests, the fact that we needed our guilt removed, we needed forgiveness, we needed our punishment dealt with. Jesus didn't hold on to a sense of entitlement as the Son of God. He deserved a throne and worship, and he endured instead a cross and humiliation and mockery. Jesus made himself nothing. He served us when he deserved serving and worshipping. He became a human being and died on the cross to save us. And then Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now. What does their obedience look like? Verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Some things in the Bible are really hard, aren't they? <laughs> this is a there's, a... there's a passage, isn't there, that says some things, that they're just hard in Scripture. This is one of them, no? Do all things, all things without questioning or grumbling. Paul uses some Old Testament language to refer to a time when the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea, God had saved them out of slavery, miraculously, they went into wilderness, and then what did the Israelites do when God had saved them out of slavery? What did they do? They grumbled about it. Grumbled. They said, well, what's there to drink here? <laughs> God had parted the Red Sea, led them out of Egypt. He delivered plagues on the Pharaoh. They crossed the Red Sea in this miraculous act of salvation. Where's the drink? Well, where on earth are we going to get our drink from? At least over there in slavery, we had meat and bread. 
over here. And they grumbled and grumbled. They grumbled to one another, and they grumbled to their leaders. You brought us out here to die of starvation. And then ultimately Moses tells them, your grumbling is not against us, but it's against the Lord. What's this kind of grumbling that Paul's talking about here and that we see in the uh, Israelites? It's discontentment made audible. Discontentment made audible. It's our heart's disdain and contempt that escapes out of our mouth by accident. I meant to keep that in. It's our heart's disdain that escapes through the mouth. It might be better known as venting or getting something off my chest or I'm just being honest. It might be better known as um, sharing my burdens. I'm offloading or even I'm sharing a prayer request. It's often just a grumble. When does, uh, why does this happen? Grumbling happens because it's the sound of our craving inside of us, a strong craving for something we don't have, and it begins to grow restless. We have a craving, a desire for something that's not being met, and we grow restless in our hearts. And it often comes out of a desire for good things. The Israelites wanting food and drink. Is that a bad desire? No, it's a good thing, isn't it? It helps you live and survive. But they wanted it sooner than God was going to give it to them. And they wanted it more than they wanted God. And that's where the issue lay. If you're anything like me, then when you're feeling discontent and restless inside and he comes out in grumbling, there's a voice inside your head that goes, it's not fair. I feel a sense that this isn't fair, it's injustice against me. It's not right. And what happens is desire, that can often be good, gets misplaced, and it grows into expectation. We expect food and drink in this way now, and we're not happy about it. An expectation grows into something else, into rights. It's not just that this is now a desire, it's a right. I have a right to this. And that sense of rights develops into a sense of justified entitlement. A sense of I'm entitled to this. And instead of bringing our disappointment to God in faith, in unbelief, we let this unmet desire kind of fester away in our hearts And it grows and grows, and eventually it comes out. And that's what grumbling sounds like. So when should we not grumble, Paul says, in all things? When we wake up with a sore throat, when we drive and they cut you up, when uh, we receive criticism, fairly or unfairly, when we have to pay a parking ticket, when we host guests, when we discipline our children, when we change a flat tire, when we answer emails, when we're inconvenienced in all things, do all things without grumbling or questioning. So who do we, or what do we grumble about? Who do, who do we grumble about? What do we grumble about? What do you feel justifiably discontent about? What do you feel a sense of entitlement about? Because even though he could have justified it, Jesus didn't grumble about us or our sin, did he? 
He didn't grumble about us. Those ones we created down there, look at the way they're behaving. We shouldn't have bothered. Look at them. He didn't, did he? He resolved with the Father, made a covenant of love to rescue us. Jesus didn't grumble about us or our sin. He didn't expect anything of us. He said, well, we at least expect something from them. Look at how they've behaved. He didn't. By grace, just did it all for us on our behalf. He didn't assert his right to be angry. Jesus didn't allow a sense of entitlement inside him to grow. I'm the son of God. Perfect and righteous. No, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, Jesus' humility focuses not on our own sense of entitlement, not on our own sense of pain, um, injustice, or our feelings of being misunderstood, but it focuses on the interests of others, even if it costs us, even if we have to absorb pain and injustice and the misunderstanding. Jesus' humility unites people. It brings them together with bonds of love. It draws people together. So when our hearts grow discontent and we're tempted to grumble, Paul says, have this mind among you in the last passage, didn't he? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Work out our salvation seriously by taking Jesus' attitude for ourselves, by dying to ourself, by putting to death. Colossians 3 talks all about putting things to death. Put to death your own desires. Put to death your own expectations. Put to death our own sense of uh, justifiable discontent. Put to death our sense of entitlement. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Follow his example and absorb the pain, sometimes the mockery, the hatred, the injustice of it all. This is why it's hard, isn't it, following Jesus? When he hung there on the cross, he did all that. It was totally unjustifiable, and he absorbed it. When things go against you, rightly or wrongly, that's the way of Jesus, dying to this and taking up this. That's what it looks like to be obeying Jesus' humble attitude an example in our relationships. It's really painful and it's really difficult, isn't it? Uh, so to help us do that, when, what, we, what do we do when we feel the dis- discontentment kind of rumbling away inside of us? Sit yourself down and ask yourself the question when you start to grumble. What is it that I'm wanting more than to please God? What is it that I'm craving that's become so important that I'm kind of not following Jesus' example? What desire has grown bigger than knowing him? And the final thing, and so shine as lights in a dark world of conflict. I remember a friend had started a job at a university in an office. It was a new job for him, surrounded by new work colleagues, and he was talking about how it was felt like the office environment was, and he told me about this time when a colleague of his in the office had started grumbling and moaning about somebody else in the team. And he talked about how uneasy 
that made him feel. Because he heard them grumbling about someone else and he thought in his head, if they can grumble about them, then they can grumble about me. And it left him feeling a little bit uneasy about the kind of environment he was in, worried about being on the other end of their rants to someone else. And grumbling and moaning creates that kind of environment, doesn't it? It creates an environment where people get their defences up. They've got to guard themselves and keep themselves safe. They feel vulnerable because they could be next and on the the other end of it. Um, They don't feel loved. They feel unwelcomed. That's the kind of environment grumbling creates. And in a world of conflict, people are looking for a place of safety, aren't they? Looking for a place of refuge. People are literally, at the moment, as we're well aware, looking for a place of refuge. Um, on that, I'm aware that you know, the you know, government's creating this scheme, isn't it, in terms of taking in refugees. This week we had an email about um, how uh, there's a connection, as we know, with some churches in uh, Ukraine, and there may be, well be a way in which we can connect with the churches out there. Um, and create a connection to have people in our in our homes. We, we haven't got it quite up and running, so I'll, we'll send you the information when that's possible. Um, and we've got a better idea of what it what it will look like. But just so you know, that's in our thoughts, and there's plans underway, and we'll communicate them uh, when we've got them. But in a world of conflict, people are looking for safety. They're looking for refuge, where they can be themselves, where they can be at ease. No, they're loved and welcome. In that architect story earlier, he says, you've got to make it so that it stands like a lighthouse in a dark storm. And if it's dark at sea and there's no lighthouse, the sailors don't feel safe, do they? They don't know where the shore is. They don't know how far they are from it. They don't know if they're going to run aground. They don't know where shore is, where safety is. When the lighthouse is on, it brings light on the sea. They They can see where land is. They can know that they're safe. It builds a sense of safety and security and confidence as they kind of navigate their way uh, on the sea. And so it is. Verse 15, Paul tells us that obeying, the result of obeying Jesus' example of uh, an attitude, an example of humility, is um, the result of forgiving one another, of reconciling and of being at harmony with one another is that we will shine as lights in a dark world. Of conflict. The result will be a church that's a place of safety, of security, and of confidence, where people know they're welcome and are well loved. So the question is then what kind of environment are we as a church? Are we a place where people need their defences up, where they need to be on guard? Or is it a place where people feel safe and secure? and confident and loved. Because Jesus has called us, hasn't he, to be his kingdom people, his harmonious kingdom people who stand out as a thing of beauty against a backdrop of dark conflict and disharmony, as a sign that Jesus is going to return and will establish harmony in the new heavens and new earth when he returns. And in verse 16 to 18, Paul tells us, Um, He urges the Philippians to live in harmony with one another so that there'll be his pride and joy when Jesus returns. And when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, resolving our disagreements and grievances with one another, with Jesus' humble attitude and example, living in harmony with one another, 
then this church will be our collective pride and joy. Phil Moore says this, if we are humble like Jesus, God will turn us into stars. And stars always shine brightest in the darkest sky. Does the band want to come back up and we'll maybe sing uh, one song before we, we finish? Shall we stand and I'm going to pray. But Lord, we thank you that you have not let any kind of discontentment grow in your heart towards us. We thank you you've not held on to a sense of entitlement. We thank you that you have not um, justifiably continued your, directed your anger towards us. We thank you that you directed it towards Jesus on the cross who humbly and obediently died in our place so that we could be saved. Thank you that you didn't grumble at us and our sin and the way that we've lived our lives um, opposed to you. But instead, you've, uh, by grace, come and rescued us and initiated that we were just living lives our own way and you have intervened and initiated a relationship with us, reconciled us to yourself. It's all your grace and we're grateful for it, Lord. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us and give us the strength to have Jesus' attitude for ourselves and to follow his example even when it's painful, even when it's hard work. We pray, just what Evelyn was saying earlier, that the Spirit would be power to us, to strengthen us, to absorb pain and injustice so that we don't grumble, but are those who seek to be reconciled with others and live in harmony with them. Um, we're so grateful for how you've made peace between us through Jesus. We pray that now, Lord, you would help us have the strength to be those who help others reconcile and uh, help us to be a people who are at peace with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.